Um, if you've not been to Southwest before, you're very, very welcome. Uh, it's great to see you here. Hopefully, uh, this church isn't like that pub in the middle of the countryside that you go into and everyone turns around uh, on their bar stools. Um, so, my name's Sam. I'm married to the lovely Sarah. We're having a baby in November. He'll be a new addition to the church, so we're very excited about that. Um, and as Mike said earlier, it's six weeks of summer. Um, so I think afterwards we're having a tea party outside. Mike's giving me the thumbs up, so I've got that right. Um, yeah, great. So, um, six weeks of summer. Um, here we go. Um, so over the course of the summer weeks, uh, different speakers are going to be looking at different psalms. Um, and uh, this morning I'm going to be looking at Psalm 121. Um, the Psalms, for those of you who may not know, uh, are the, uh, in the middle of the Bible. They're all the different songs and prayers and laments and heart cries of lots of different people. There's, a, there's 150 in, in the Bible. Um, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word um, psalmos means sung to heart music, so they're, they're kind of like worship songs. It's kind of like getting the uh, worship book uh, and being able to read through it and look at, look at the words and examine it. Um, so, uh, and that word, interestingly, comes from uh, salim, which means to pluck. So, um, yeah, it's a very sort of dainty, a dainty word. Um, so, why look at the Psalms? First of all, uh, I, I love the Psalms because, if we could go to the next slide, thank you. Um, I love them, first of all, because they're so honest. Um, when we look at the Bible and read the Psalms, they're every sort of range and spectrum of emotion um, we can see, and, uh, and that's amazing. It's, there are Psalms that sort of are angry at God, there are Psalms that praise God, there are Psalms that say, God, I am in a bit of a tricky spot. Um, there are psalms that cry out. There's lots of different emotions going on. Um, I love them because they're written by people who have walked the walk and talked the talk, um, people who have had some of the most amazing relationships with God and have um, walked out that relationship. Um, it's people like King David who... Uh, who we, we know was the, the king of Israel who had a heart after God's own heart. Um, then I also love the Psalms because um, Jesus was intimately knowledgeable of the Psalms. He knew the Psalms inside out. Um, he didn't have a New Testament. Uh, he had the Old Testament. And uh, he quotes from the Psalms more than anywhere else in Scripture. So you know that these are the verses that he meditated on. Um, and if Jesus, the Son of God, meditated on these words, then how much more should we do that? Um, it's amazing at various different points that he quotes from the Psalms, and they're sort of in his vocabulary. He, he, it sort of rolls off the tongue for him. So, uh, moving on. I'm going to be looking at Psalm 121. I'm not going to be looking at Psalm 119, which is a longie. Um, and... Uh, when Mike first mentioned this, uh, this talk, I was thinking, oh, well, who, which psalms are gonna people, people are going to choose? There's, you know, the popular 
popular ones are Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. thought that would be a, that would be a popular one. Um, and uh, there are several other psalms that I thought would be in and amongst the sort of favorites, as you were. Maybe like Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, uh, there, there, there are so many sort of classic and well-known sort of verses that originate in the psalms. Um, but I, I said to my, oh, Mike, have, has, anyone done, has anyone chosen Psalm 1 to 1? And thankfully he said no, because I love this psalm. Um, and I'm going to read it to you now. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God watches over you. The Lord, sorry, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. I really love this psalm. I think it's a really cool psalm. Um, and just to give a bit of a context, this psalm uh, was written. Uh, it's written to be remembered and sung as people were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So they'd be coming from places here, there, and everywhere, um, and they'd be making that trek, as it probably would have been in those days, to Jerusalem in order to worship. Um, and it was a dangerous journey, and we can see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, because um, the chap who gets beaten up was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and we know that priests and Levites were going the other way to Jerusalem. So this is the kind of pathway that they would have encountered. It would have been kind of like Lord of the Rings, but maybe less sort of intense. Um, so it's a perilous journey, really. And this psalm would have been sung, it would have been remembered, it would have been meditated on as they made their journey to worship in Jerusalem. And for us, it's kind of like a picture of our life in a way that life isn't always easy, can be dangerous, it's often intimidating, but that God is intimately involved in our lives and he promises to provide for us and be with us. So this is an Olympic year. Did anyone watch any of the Olympics this morning and see Mo Farah? Bring it home. Um, with so much attention on the Olympics, I don't know about you, but they're very convenient four-year markers of what you were doing in your life. And as you look back, you think, oh, wow, was that four years ago? Um, so um, I don't know if you can remember what you are doing in London 2012. Um, I, was, I, I was actually getting married to Sarah, and we just moved into our, our first home, and we were frantically trying to work out how to watch it, and we had no TV and no Wi-Fi, uh, but first world problems, so not a, big, uh, not a big one. Can you remember where you were in, when Beijing, the Olympics were on? Athens, 2004. Sydney. 2000, Atlanta, 96, Barcelona, 92, anyone? <laughs> Seoul, 88, anyone? And I'm going to stop at Los Angeles in 84 because I wasn't alive. Um, 
Sorry. <laughs> Who remembers the first Olympics in London? <laughs> Fantastic. Sorry. The one after the war, the first Olympics in London. Fantastic. Um, one Olympics that I remember very clearly was in 2008, because I was in Beijing at the time. I was traveling in China. Um, I'd just finished my degree, and I'd got my big old backpack. I'd got a ticket and flown over to China, and uh, I was loving it. It was a big adventure. Um, in order to sort of aid my visa application, my very caring mother bought me tickets to the final of the women's football in the Olympics, because she believed that having a ticket would help at the embassy, my justification, you know, here to see the, the game. Um, so I turned up in the middle of Beijing. Um, I got a taxi. I had to go, and, had to, go to this big central administration building um, to pick up my tickets. Um, it was in the middle of the city. All the signage around was in Mandarin. There was no European languages in sight. It wasn't like being in France where you can or Spain or Italy, where you can kind of work out, that's taxio, or that's the, yeah, I kind of think that's the taxi, busso, that's where the bus is. <laughs> um, it was totally, totally foreign uh, to me. So as I stepped out of the taxi, waved the taxi driver goodbye, in the middle of this huge metropolis, signage everywhere that I didn't read or understand, huge buildings in front of me, um, I slid my hands down to my pockets, and I realized that I didn't have my passport or my phone, and that they must have slipped out of my pocket in the, in, the, in the taxi. I still think this was actually my fault, because at the time, I had a Samsung phone, which was marketed as the thinnest phone in the world. Um, so it slipped out of my pocket. <laughs> um, but uh, I immediately went into panic mode, and was like, God! Um, people looking at me must have thought I was a deranged person because I was sort of scre like screaming, pulling my hair out, trying to work out what to do. All I, ha I had my wallet, so I had some cash, but I had no identification, no phone. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this where you're sort of reduced to panic praying, um, and this is sort of a silly example. Um, but um, that's what I did. I sort of was reduced to calling on God. And amazingly, about 30 seconds later... Uh, the car pulled up again, and this Be Beijing taxi driver leaned out with my phone and my passport and gave them to me. And um, it was amazing, because I, I genuinely thought I was in a tricky situation. Um, so I, I grabbed the biggest note I could find, gave it to him, and he drove off. I actually realized that note was, was actually a very small note, which was quite embarrassing. Um, <laughs> But it was an amazing answer to prayer because just 30 seconds after it happened, I was crying, crying out to God. This taxi drove, uh, drove back. So this is a kind of a trivial example of calling out to God in a crisis. But the Bible promises that God does answer us when we cry out to him. Um, Psalm 50 says, uh, Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Psalm 91 says, because he loves me, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near 
to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So the first point I just want to bring up is that we need help more than we think we do. Um, This is kind of like a moment of crisis, and I think at crisis moments, it accentuates our, uh, well, we notice more acutely that we need God because we have no phone, we have no passport. But the reality is we need God way more than we think we do. Um, The first president of the United States, George Washington, said that providence has at all times been my only dependence for all other resources seem to have failed us. And that's kind of true. We need God uh, in every detail of our lives. We need God uh, in our government, in our economy, in our industries, in our workplaces, in our relationships, our marriages. Um, we, we need him far more than we think we do. Um, I don't know about you, but I think it's so often tempting to look like we're in perfect control of a situation, right? Um, so yesterday, David and Wendy um, came over to look at our car because we're selling our car. And it, it's so tempting to try and come across as the professional person. That's the, the wheel there. That's the, <laughs> that's the, the gears. <laughs> um, horsepower. It's got all of the horse. Got all of the horsepower. <laughs> Uh, petrol, you can fill it right up and then on the road. Um, we always want to appear like we're knowledgeable and in control. Um, but the reality is, it's so often it's completely not the case as it was for me yesterday. Um, and the Bible calls this moment-by-moment uh, neediness, poverty of spirit. And that can seem like a negative phrase, but Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit, for, they, for those of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and that word uh, blessedness in the Greek, it kind of means happy. It means blessed. It means to be envied. So whereas in the world's eyes, a state of neediness might be seen as a negative thing in the kingdom of God, it's actually something which is a state where God can be fully involved in our lives. Um, Henry Nguyen says, we're so inclined to cover up our poverty and ignore it that we often miss the opportunity to discover God who dwells in it. Uh, Next point coming up. Where does our help come from? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So different interpretations of this psalm see the mountains as representing different things. Some see it as sinister opposition to the plan of God. Some see it as a demonstration of God's strength, so it must be a good thing. Some people think that it's the false gods that we look to when, um, when we uh, are in need. I think the way I, look, uh, the way I read it is that they're kind of the intimidating surroundings that heighten our sense of aloneness when we're in need. They're mountains that make us aware that we're in the valley. Um, they make us more easily and obviously recognize our need for God. So lifting our eyes, I don't know where heaven is geographically, but lifting our eyes is kind of like a metaphor for changing our perspective, not just to look at the reality in front of us, but at the possibilities that could occur if God, who is not bound by natural laws, would be involved. Um, I really love the fact that the scripture says 
My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Um, it doesn't just say that he made the earth. It doesn't just say that he made the situation we're in. He made heaven and earth. Um, I'm going to come on to that a bit more in a second. And there's two other things that I, I like about this. The first of all, that God is a maker. He, he kind of made everything. Um, he's intimately involved. He knows how you work. And I think Camilla touched on it really beautifully last week. If you get a chance, do listen to the podcast. But she talked about how we're all different. We have different makeups and sensibilities. We have different strengths and weaknesses. We have um, some people are inclined to happiness. Some people are inclined to sorrow. Some people are inclined all, all sorts of things. We come in lots of different shapes and sizes, introverts, extroverts, the whole, um, the whole shebang. Um, but here in the psalm, it says that God is the maker of heaven and earth. We can encourage ourselves looking at Psalm 100 where it says that um, he made us and we're his. So he has the manual. He understands you inside out, even if you may not understand yourself sometimes. God understands you. Um, and then secondly, I like the fact that, um, as I said, he's the maker of heaven and earth. And we need heaven's help to answer earth's problems. It's just a reality. We need heaven's help to answer earth's problems. Jesus clearly sees on this level, um, and we need to learn something from it. If you look at his life in the Gospels, he clearly sees with a different perspective to, to the disciples. I love this verse in John 4 where it says, Do you not say there are uh, yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So I think this is an amazing scripture because essentially they're probably, um, well, they'd be in, it's, um, imagine a farmer and harvest is four months off and Jesus is, is walking up and going, looks right to me. And they sort of must be scratching their heads thinking, but, but I don't see a harvest. Um, and that's the way Jesus sees. And I think for each of us in our own lives, we probably, if we're honest, look around and we don't necessarily see a harvest. We look in our workplaces, we look at the people we work with, and we think, oh man, it would be brilliant if God were to work in more in, in, in these people's lives. And, and we look at it, we see the situation on the outside, and we don't, we don't see the harvest. But Jesus looks at it totally different and says, these, these fields are white for harvest. Um, so we look, uh, if we look with spiritual eyes, we can see what God's doing. Um, in Romans, it talks about scripture of not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think this is another sort of hint at how God wants us to approach life, wants us to think um, by, tra- by transforming the way we think, renewing our mind, we, 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 are, we are able to follow him. Um, so next slide, the father at work. So it says in Psalm 121, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I think this is um, going to be a, a verse that will really come to life when we have our baby in November. Um, 
So although it doesn't always feel like it, the truth of Scripture is that God is actively involved in our lives. Um, I love the description that C.S. Lewis makes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, when Mr. Beaver says, uh, after, it seems like, the, I think, the hundredth year of winter, where the White Witch has had her spell and control over Narnia, Mr. Beaver says, you know, don't worry, Aslan is on the move. And I think that's kind of a picture of the father's activity. The father is on the move. And John, Jesus, in John's Gospel, Jesus says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. And in Psalm 121, we read of a God who doesn't slumber or sleep. God is much more active and involved in creation and our lives than we realize. Sometimes it's hard to believe where we see he's at work, but he is at work, even if it's beyond our understanding. Sometimes we can settle into this belief system, which is called deism. And deism is the belief that God essentially created the world and then kind of left left us to it. Um, But that's not the God that we see in Scripture. I picture the father in the story of the prodigal son as his son has gone off into this far-off land. I can just picture him not not getting a good night's sleep at all, tossing and turning, waking up in the middle of the night, not sleeping, uh, plotting, walking around the kitchen, trying to work out how he's going to get his son back. Um, I was talking to Sarah last night, and she reminds me that we don't need to think about God for him to think about us. We are always on his mind. Um, Sarah was telling me a story about her, her dad um, back in the 80s when um, her sister was born, uh, who was uh, his first child. And she, they have a videotape of, of him pretty much just watching her sleep. And it's just a, apparently... A, uh, very, unin- I mean, lovely, but um, <laughs> I think the, the content of the video doesn't evolve. It, it, it's mostly just her sleeping, breathing in and out. Um, but what a lovely picture of the Father's attention on us, the Father looking upon us um, and delighting in us. So, next point, faith is living like God's on the case. He will not let your foot slip. It's kind of a challenging psalm in a way because you read it and you go, I've definitely tripped up a few times. But I don't, I don't think it's necessarily uh, saying that we won't trip up, uh, as I mistakenly thought. But there are proclamations in here of God's sovereign protection. How many of you in the room would identify yourselves as a warrior? Okay. Um, again, as Camilla summarized last week, some of us, it's just in our nature. We're inclined to chew things over, to worry until, until we have a resolution. Um, and again, this, is kind of, this can be kind of challenging. When we read in Matthew 6, um, the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of a chunk of the Bible that if you're a warrior, you wish didn't exist. Um, when Jesus says, oh, so simply... Um, I tell you, do not worry about your life. 
whether you have enough food or drink, enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they? Um, do, uh, and do you worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as, as they are. And if God so wonderfully cares for the wildflowers, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Ouch. <laughs> so Jesus calls his moment-by-moment moment, uh, provision faith. Um, I quite like this psalm again because it says that God doesn't slumber or sleep, but we have a totally, totally different picture in the gospel when we see Jesus in a boat in the middle of a massive storm. All the disciples are in a state of uh, concern, and Jesus is fast asleep. Uh, it says, suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? So challenging. Philip Yancey, uh, who wrote the book Finding God in Unexpected Places, says that I've learned that faith means trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And that's sort of kind of how it happens. And then lastly, um, worship. It's the master plan of God. And this, this whole psalm is taking place in the context of a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to worship. And the bigger picture of this situation is that God's plan and purpose for each one of us uh, is for worship. That might sound a bit weird, maybe a bit egotistical if you look at it in a certain way, until we realize that worship is the most powerful and empowering force in heaven and on earth and is the greatest gift that God can give to the church. Um, in John 4, Jesus has a conversation uh, with a woman at a well. And they're both worshippers. They both have different lives, but they both identify as worshippers. Um, so he gives her this amazing prophetic insight into her life because she's um, had five husbands. I think it's five. And, um, and he basically reads her mail, tells her the situation. So she says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. It sounds strange to sort of our contemporary ears, but I don't think it I don't think it is or was meant to be. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the, in, in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. I, I love the fact that Crystal clear, Jesus says that the Father is actively seeking worshippers. 
um, when we look at that word, seek, it's the exact same word that's used in the parable of the shepherd looking for his lost sheep. It's uh, an active hunting down um, in order to reach a conclusive end. It means to seek in order to find. It's not an aimless scrapping about. It's an intentional seeking in order to find. It has a conclusive end. So the Father is seeking worshippers. It's not, uh, not just in Jerusalem. Uh, it's not just in a place in Samaria. It's in a school in Southfields. It's all over the place. God is seeking worshippers in, in our world around us. So when we're in the valley, uh, even though we, what, we, what we can see around us is fearful, will we raise our eyes to worship God? Uh, the challenging thing is this psalm probably would have taken place when people were cold, tired, are we there yet? Um, and yet it was a declaration of praise that God was on the case. So the reality, uh, regardless of whether we see it or not, is that God is in control, that God is mighty, that God is for us, and that he will ultimately be triumphant.